106.5 WFMP, this is Community Control Now, the show seeking democratic community control of public institutions with a particular interest in the U.S. policing apparatus. I'm your co-host, Vincent Gonzalez. Mike T in the building. Say what's up to the people. Power to the people. Yep, yep. Community Control Now seeks to end the rampant abuses by the state, which greatly target the pers- persons of color and the economically disadvantaged. Community Control Now believes in all power to all oppressed people all over the world. For today's show, we got just, it's an honor and privilege here. Illustrious guest, Yanilda Gonzalez, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Um, Your book, Authoritarian Police and Democracy, Contested Security in Latin America, speaks on uh, the persistence of police forces as in authoritarian enclaves in otherwise democratic states. And um, this is just like, this is huge for us. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you had to speak with your class. And um, this is like, I'm going to give you your flowers for a couple of seconds here. Um, just reading through this book. Um, and, you know, I, I consider myself a organizer activists on a local level here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, this this beautiful work that you uh, compiled, and I could just tell like the thoughtfulness that you put in it. Um, I felt a sense of solidarity with persons in the global South because, you know, a lot of times, you know, Americans, we don't we don't consider. I mean, we I, I think, you know, thinking, feeling people, we know that this thing happens. Um, all over the world, but to the extent and, um, you know, all the different parallels, like I said, I felt that's a great sense of solidarity. So, um, Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for, for speaking with us here. It's a pleasure to be with you, um, Vincent and Mike, and, and um, get an opportunity, like you said, to share a little bit about the commonalities and shared experiences that, that happen in societies that are unequal and where policing is disproportionately targeting folks who are, you know, from racialized, minoritized and uh, impoverished communities. Um, And that's something that we see similarly, you know, whether it's in the U.S., you know, Louisville, New York City, Sao Paulo, Bogota, it's it's a very similar set of patterns. Yes. Yes. So uh, just getting into it here, this work deeply examines the transition of the public safety apparatus in Latin America, namely Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia, from authoritarian to democratic rule. Um, Could you highlight some of the key points uh, you can share about this work and we can just, you know, sort of riff on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the kind of starting point for me uh, as, as a young person, you know, like, as a teenager growing up in New York City, and then uh, as a, you know, some in my young, in my early 20s when I moved to Latin America, I saw this, uh, you know, something that was really puzzling for me, which was the, this persistence of police violence in democracies, you know, whether we're talking about the U.S. or Argentina, where um, I was living at the time, where, uh, you know, you just saw really rampant abuses, you know, sort of case after case of police killings, um, and this is despite the fact that there are supposed to be so many elements of democracy that, are supposed to protect us from these kinds of abuses, right? Um, you know, leaders have to depend on our votes, um, you know, to stay in power. They, um, you know, we're supposed to be protected by certain sets of rights. 
um institutions are supposed to be accountable right all these elements of democracy are in my mind that you know as a young person at the time told me that something was wrong here that we shouldn't see this kind of police violence um in in countries that supposedly have these kinds of democratic um protections right and so what i did was i began to research kind of how um particularly first in argentina then in brazil and then in colombia how did we end up with um these types of police forces despite the fact that that these are otherwise you know healthy democracies and so one of the things that i started learning about uh, as i did the kind of historical research was that there was really a seamless transition from in policing from authoritarian you know dictatorships um to democratic rule so even though in places like argentina and brazil when they transitioned from you know these very famous you know famous famously repressive dictatorships, they had so many kinds of institutional transformations, specific, particularly when it came to the, to the military, um, but also they developed new constitutions. Um, you know, Brazil has one of the most um, protective constitutions in terms of rights. You know, they, they, out, they, they have so many rights protections um, in that constitution. They have so many interesting, you know, democratic participation elements of that constitution. But even though these countries took great pains to you know, it transform a lot of different institutions when they transition to democracy, uh, policing largely remained the same. Uh, it was the same people, it was the same laws that governed policing, and it was the same practices. Um, you know, one part in the book, I, I, I trace the use of this, um, you know, you know, just again, this is not a pleasant subject, but um, a torture device um, in Brazil uh, that came directly from the dictatorship. And similar, you know, uh, and the same in Argentina, the same torture device that was used by the dictatorship on people, which was, you know, um, to, to deliver electric shock to people's bodies. Uh, it was was seamlessly used by police and democracy as well. And the same in, in Brazil, sort of the same torture practices that were used by uh, people, by agents of the dictatorial regime were similarly used in democracy um, with with co with continuity, right? With no questioning of how police carry out their practices and, and so the same by it's not surprising then that the same violent practices um would persist as well when you have the same people you have the same laws and by and large you have the same sets of rules and practices governing policing and uh so if i could just continue briefly um so one of the things that um that i then sort of started to read about was about policing in authoritarian countries uh policing in in, in china um you know police in other parts in the world and what i learned was that Policing, uh, as we saw it in uh, democratic countries like Brazil, Argentina, even in many parts of the U.S., is that police isn't authoritarian just in terms of this arbitrary violence that we've been talking about. It's also other elements, right? The police um, serve the interests of political leaders. Um, you know, very often instead of serving the communities that that ostensibly are the ones that they're supposed to be serving, um, and they're subjected to little to no external accountability. So it was these three um, elements of um, you know, arbitrary use of of, of force, um, you know, without it being tied to the rule of law, um, serving the interests of political leaders and no external accountability. This is these are the elements that led me to actually call policing um, authoritarian, even though we're in democratic context. Sounds um, like America. It, sorry. So it sounds like America in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. We we can find a lot of these similar patterns, um, you know, in many cities around the, in many cities around the U.S. Absolutely. Um, and so one of the things that I argue in the book is that this persistence of authoritarian policing is not like an aberration of democracy, is not an oversight of democracy. It's actually a result of democratic processes. 
Um, and so what I do in the book is kind of trace how the divisions in society and unequal societies, such as we have in the US, such as we have in many parts you know, of Latin America uh, and many other parts of the world, mean that the way that um, you know, large groups of citizens, particularly from more privileged sectors, they actually end up demanding a police force that is um, violent, that is unaccountable, um, and that um, you know, protects them while repressing others. Um, and so when you have elections, when you have democratic you know, participatory processes, uh, the, 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 the outcome that will be yielded is one that will be fundamentally unequal in that respect. And so it will support the persistence of this unequal, unaccountable policing, um, you know, uh, it, it, despite the fact that democracy promises us um, that, um, that we ought to be protected from these kinds of, of, of abuses. Yeah, I, one of the things that really stood out in your book is just, um, like I said, those so many of those parallels, um, and in particular, just how deeply this thing tracks with race and class. Um, like you said, it's a complete. It's almost a you could dare I say a completely different system that persons are under, and the and the favelas, um, you know, say which are, are mostly black. I mean, it 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 was in uh, what I know of police violence statistics in America. How you know African Americans are only thirteen percent of the population, but are um, over more than half of the um, unarmed police shootings. I think that um, I, I noticed that uh, with with Brazil, I'm not, not as certain. I think of the three countries you mainly examine, Argentina was uh, a little bit. Um, uh, more ahead of things in terms of the reform, but uh, I guess in particular, Brazil is like um, the authoritarian um, sort of uh, lens is, is kind of very much uh, in place. Yeah, absolutely. The, a lot of these um, um, inequalities um, that you, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> a lot of these inequalities that you mentioned definitely play out um in 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 similar ways uh but they respond to the types of inequalities that you see in societies um and so in argentina uh one of the main sort of divisions um is is class and so you see that where you have this sort of very stark class inequality um it doesn't mean that there's not racial diversity it's just not very salient um it's not sort of yet an issue that 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 is um you know divides society in the way that we see here um but but sort of you you see that that sort of by by class and sort of where people live. So in the in the mo most low income areas is where you see the most police violence and and that um, studies that have been done on this mostly in the in the nineties. Um, but 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 folks who work on these issues, the organizations that work on these issues today, say that these practices continue to fundamentally affect those that are you know low income working class and living in low income communities known as villas. Uh, that these are the communities that, that most suffer these violence. And similarly in Brazil, uh, we see the the um, the layering of race on top of that. Um, and so, um, you know, sort of year after year, we see, first of all, police violence rates in Brazil are much higher than what we see in the U.S. So in the U.S., you have about 1,100 uh, police killings per year. At least that's what we know from the uh, data sets that are, have been compiled by places like the Washington Post, um, mapping police violence and other other you know crowdsourced and media sources like that um it's about 1100 in, in in the last few years uh from what we know in brazil it's between four and six thousand 
Um, and that's despite the fact that they have 100 million fewer people. Um, and so it's a much higher rates of, of violence and it, 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 the disproportionality is, um, is much like what we see here. So even the black Brazilians are about or just over half of the population, um, depending on the year, they're like uh, 75 to 80% of the victims of police killings. Um, and in the places where we've seen um, uh, studies in terms of class, for example, in the state of Sao Paulo in 2017, one study found that about 75% of the victims of police killings um, had only completed primary education. Um, and so we, we really see that um, this inequality in terms of class and race um, that, that you've been talking about, we see that playing out uh, in the, the cases that I study in Latin America as well. And it's just so, it's almost like it's deeply normalized in these society. There was one quote you uh, quoted, some officers you were uh, in a ride along with, and they said, what was that? You only get the day off if you kill someone. And it, yeah. it was just normalized as just, uh, you know, because but to have it in the thousands, like I said, and in American activists, we tend to um, sort of centralize things as um, this is just the epicenter of it. But I mean, you know, the global South and all over this world, this is, you know, a, a, uh, a deeply concerning uh, thing. And that just, um, just, yeah, man, your, your, your work opened my eyes to a, to a lot of different stuff here. Um, yeah. I'm going to, could I just say something about that Vincent about this normalization? Yes. Um, it's yeah, that was that was a really striking thing um, for me is sort of seeing how often when I was with police officers and even sometimes, um, you know, prosecutors and the like, but mostly police officers, that there was a lot of jokes about police violence. Um, and uh, and then that to me sort of said it wasn't necessarily that like that particular officer is is um, has engaged in this violence or, or anything like that. So I'm not making claims about their own involvement, but I think it does speak to the normalization of um, that this is something that people have naturalized that it's sort of okay that this is part of policing. Um, and so I sort of mentioned this to my students last week, this past week, um, about the case of Iceland where um, in 2013, there was a lot of reporting because the police there had killed someone for the very first time. Um, so in the entire, you know, independence of Iceland, um, you know, since the mid 20th century, the first time that they killed, that the police killed someone was in 2013 and it was a national tragedy. Um, you know, people. It was a huge shock and 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 a huge tragedy, and that's how it was talked about. And um, and I sort of get us to have this thought experiment of like, what if in the U.S. and Brazil, and like, we considered every person, you know, each of these instances a national tragedy, um, and you know, and did everything to pre to prevent um, these killings from happening. You know, it's it's a very different reality, obviously, in lots of different ways. But it's just an invitation for us to think about what if we thought about police violence in this way rather than the kind of more normalized way that we um, tend to think about it in the U.S. I, I love that as a thought experiment. And it perfectly segues into this second question here. In chapter two, uh, there's a section of your book, Unpacking Scandal. You argue that police misconduct scandals are not a function of the quality of a particular police force, nor of the level of police violence in a region. You further break down how the use of issue building around specific instances of police misconducts on the grassroots activist level has inconsistencies with overall structural change of the policing system in the US and abroad. Uh, so if you could please just elaborate on that, 
Um, and when I, I guess before you do that, um, you know, Louisville, Kentucky in 2020, um, we had the tragedy of uh, the Brianna Taylor case and um, just a little background, which, you know, gave to your class earlier. Um, Mike's been in the struggle for decades here. Um, I was a uh, activist prior to those uh, the uh, uprising uh, probably about for the last about 15 or so years. Um, so when that came along, it was like this big groundswell. And um, as we stand now, I got to talk to Mike about it all the time. It, it's as if nothing happened. So this unpacking scandals thing, and it's, it's such a dice roll. You don't know. I think your, your uh, book talks about middle-class sensibilities. Like, you know, it's this random confluence of factors that you have to um, hit in order to get the national uh, media attention. Uh, so if, if you don't mind, please elaborating on that. Um, yeah, one of the things that I always, you know, scratch my head about is why do some cases become scandals? That that, And what I mean by scandals is a case that um, people who are not typically attentive to policing suddenly start to pay attention. That people who are typically even maybe supportive of, of police and, and supportive of, of um, you know, think police are doing a good job, they trust police, even they start to get concerned and even they start to speak out um, because those of us that have been paying attention to this issue, you know, you know as, as you, as Mike, um, are, we're always thinking about policing. We're always thinking about police violence. We're always concerned about it. We're always trying to talk to people about it. But there's a sort of segment in the middle that very, that, that um, kind of, this is not a concern to them. They don't see it in their communities. Um, they rarely see it on the, in the media. And when they do, they might say, well, that person must have done something. Um, you know, and and so there's certain events that come along and, and say to people, you know, wait a second, something is wrong with policing and we need to do something about it. Um, you know, sort of after Ferguson, I, I remember reading a lot of interviews with um, particularly white Americans from different parts of the country who would sort of say, you know, this is the first time that I've seen, you know, that police, uh, you know, racially, are racially uh, unequal, that the police are racially discriminatory. Um, you know, and there's like, this is a direct quote I remember from, a, a, you know, I think it was like an elderly white woman from possibly from the Bay Area. And she sort of had just come out of a community meeting of hearing her neighbor, you know, about, you know, a, a black resident talking about their experiences with police. And she was like, I had no idea my neighbors felt this way. Um, and, and in a, you know, unequal, segregated society like ours, we can see how that can happen, right? That you don't actually interact that much with people who are not like you. And so you don't know what their experiences are. And so these cases open up uh, a whole world to people who are not typically exposed to this police violence. Um, and so, but the thing that always makes me scratch my head is sort of why do some cases become a scandal and not others? Um, and so, you know, and, and sometimes we talk a lot about video, for example, as being one of the drivers. Um, and, but but yet when we compare, for example, the case of, uh, I, I always draw this example of Michael Brown, of course, which did not, did not have a video versus John Crawford III. Um, you know, who was killed uh, just a few days before Michael Brown um, in, in August of 2014 in Beaver Creek, Ohio, and he was shot in a Walmart. He was walking around with like a toy gun. He was a 22-year-old, you know, father, young black man walking around with a BB gun or something, uh, you know, a toy gun and uh, in, in Walmart. 
and uh, someone called the police, and within seconds, shot uh, on sight. Shot on sight. We were in the streets for that. It was mm -hmm. yeah, and it just you and don't it, you can't you can't track what's gonna touch the sensibilities of and it, you know it, I, sometimes it, it's almost it's it's, it's craving because it's like I we're I'm just I, we're waiting for them to kill someone else, and I never I don't want to. That 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 doesn't pay any dividends for any social justice or you know, I, it's it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's a th and that's the thing. It's sort of that you know, the entire country knows who Michael Brown is. Even people outside, you know, the entire world knows who George Floyd is. Um, but why don't we know the name of John Crawford the Third? I mean, you do, I do, because we pay attention to these things. Um, but but that's the kind of question. Is sort of why do some? And that's why I kind of say, okay, what becomes a scandal is essentially random. We don't. We don't know what it is the factors, and we can't say that it's things like video or, um, or even the characteristics of the of the victim. Um, and so, but once something becomes a scandal, um, one of the things that I say is that even when you have widespread societal mobilization, that that alone is not enough to guarantee reform. Um, sometimes you get uh, what you get is you know a politician apologizing uh, for for the event. Maybe the officers get fired. Maybe the officers even get, you know, as we just saw in um, Memphis, you know, the officers may be fired, they may be charged, but does that lead to sort of structural change? Um, I, I I think it's not, you know, unfortunately, not, it's not likely. Um, and we see sort of over and over again how there's a failure of the political system um, to produce that kind of, of, of structural change in response to these, to these cases that really do cause a widespread outrage and, and a demand for change. But what I argue and what I show in the book is that that change is most likely to happen when politicians in power fear that they may be voted out of office over this. There's a very high profile case where the police were shown to be involved in the killing of a journalist. Um, and uh, obviously this is a very scandalous, you know, uh, a very concerning thing in, in, in any, any, anywhere, but especially like in, in a democracy. Um, and so it became a massive scandal immediately. And there were months of mobilizations, months of protests uh, by all sectors of society. You know, unions are very big in Argentina. Unions were heavily in, out, out in the street. Uh, you know, different human rights organizations, lots of different sectors of society were out, out criticizing the police over this case. Um, but over those first nine months after the killing, um, all the, the governor did was to, you know, acknowledge and express regret for the case, um, you know, promise resources to investigate what happened um, and sort of things of that nature. It was only uh, after the 10th month when his party lost the midterm elections that he then committed to reform. Um, and so that case shows us uh, why sort of a scandalous event alone is not enough and even widespread societal mobilization is not enough. You need, uh, I argue, um, that you, politicians have to feel that they will lose office over this. Yes. Um, and when they face that electoral threat is when I think they will become more likely to enact reform. And, and in so many ways, they're scared of the police, which, yes. you know, which sort of just stamps what your book is saying. Uh, you know, this this authoritarianism, it, it, it tracks, it, it supersedes any social political sort of uh, dimensions you would want to place upon it. And when we're coming within that, the, your, like I said, your book opened my eyes in so many ways, even though I'm, you know, I, I, I try to follow these things um, as, as a concerned citizen, uh, just as like, man, this is a, 
this is a beast. Like, I don't think people, when people speak on these things uh, so cavalierly, it's where, like, I don't know, who, you don't know who you up against. Like, this might be, dare I say, one of the biggest, um, you know, challenging apparatuses that needs to fall in order for us to have true democracy. Um, you know, we're police abolitionists and we're to this place. So like we're, we're not going to stop on that. You know, um, community control of the police is is merely uh, a, a reform pending a, uh, a complete overthrow of these, um, you know, these these systems. So um, I think that's yeah. all now, Mike, you got anything? Oh boy, very enlightening uh, discussion. I probably would like to add that what we're confronted with now, especially after the global uprisings that began um, after the George Floyd uh, case, is that, uh, and we see this here locally, that the system has actually bought off people and they're buying them off by giving people millions of dollars after their family members are killed, uh, which probably has the effect of not um, allowing them to pursue the broader issues, you know, just take the money and be thankful. And uh, and I also see, and I may have mentioned this in the previous discussion we had, a real uh, selling out of the, the petty bourgeois black forces. And I think that relates to something you said earlier about uh, Vincent quoted you on the uh, middle class sensibilities. We have a lot of black people who, you know, consider themselves middle class, who have taken on those sensibilities, and they're fearful of the underclass and the working class, and crying, just like any white middle class person, and they are or evidently have just abdicated to the uh, policing um, powers that be. Abolition apparently is off the table, if it ever was, in those circles. Uh, any type of control of the police, they uh, apparently just seem to be content with um, just changing the color of the police forces, uh, firing police chiefs and that sort of thing, even though many of the Black um petty bourgeoisie are much more connected to this police repression than the white petty bourgeoisie, you know, because of the, you know, the racial uh, divisions. But it seems like they have, have abdicated their responsibility and then the absence of a strong organization of working class people fighting for this, <laughs> excuse me, um, we're not going to get any kind of substantial reform. Because uh, if you notice, I don't know if you've been following, you know, the the, uh, the some of the struggles of the black community, police repression is not even being talked about like that. They'll talk about the individual cases, mm -hmm. you know, when these scandals pop up. But the whole question of abolition, police control, that is like off the table now. And we can't allow them to do that. I couldn't live with myself, you know. This is serious, you know. And... Um... If the fight continues in so many ways. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, any final thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the um, 
one of the things that I might just say in response to, to what Mike shared is that one of the other big puzzles is sort of why is it that we sometimes see communities that are affected by police violence um, make demands for more police, make demands um, uh, what seems to be um, taking stances against uh, uh, limits, limiting, limiting police power. Um, and, and we see this similarly in the US and in Latin America. And I think that part of that is that, first of all, you know, everybody wants to be safe. Um, you know, everybody wants to be safe. Everybody has a right to, to, to feel safe and, and, and to be protected from violence um, and, and, and crime. And but part of the problem is that sort of in our society and, in, you know, others, the only thing that people are um, told sort of by our political leaders, the only solution that you can have to, to solve crime is police. Um, and so even though we know and research shows that there's lots of other policy areas that we can social policies, you know, there's spatial policies, there's like, you know, all kinds of like urban landscapes, there's things, social programs, there's, there's community organizations and education, there's all these types of policies that play a role um, in, in reducing crime. But the only solution that people are given so often is police. Um, and so they say, well, I'm, I'm scared of, of, you know, being a victim of crime or I have been the victim of a crime. If the only solution that you're offering me is more police, then give me more police. Um, and so I think it's it's a uh, you know that a lot of communities are left without you know by our political leaders because obviously a lot of organizations like yours are out there telling people about what other options there are but by our political leaders um, we're by and large left with policing as the only solution to crime even though a lot of research shows that there's lots of different um, you know programs and policies that could be undertaken to reduce crime and to and and and, and violence. Um, and so I think that it's part of that is sort of like expanding our own imaginations about what policies, you know, what, what does safety look like, um, you know, beyond policing, um, because policing is, is, is they kind of only know how to do one thing and that's use force. Um, and so the question is, can you solve every problem by using force? Can you solve the problem of, you know, uh, of, of schooling, mental health, of homelessness, of all these things, do, it, you know, is really is force the, the only thing we can come up with to solve all these different issues? Um, you know, it's we need to expand our imagination, I think, and, and, and think about what other um, policy solutions do we have for these issues that are, you know, concerning, but which for the only solutions that our government seems to be putting forth is more police. Yes. I mean, just That's what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, and, and, they'd rather shoot the problem than solve it. Yeah. Or lock, lock the problem up. Yeah. And we, yeah. you know, like I always say this, like, Thinking, feeling people of the world, we we have a choice. You know, we we have an obligation to uh, tell the truth and and speak against these things. So, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, thank you. It's uh, beautiful work that you're doing. Uh, we you know we appreciate everything, and we, we hope that this is uh, not the last time in the shared struggle that we have, and um, uh, we. You know, thank you so much. Thank you, Vince, and thank you, Mike, so much for having me on on your program. Right on. <laughs> Me control now signing off.